I think it is genuinely true that most of us are familiar with the virtuous woman whom Solomon describes in Proverbs 31. It is a favorite text of both men and women alike because of the way it exalts and praises the excellent wife. Yet, the context of that section of Proverbs, as in the case with most of Solomon's words, has to do with King Solomon's advising his sons on what to look for in pursuing a godly wife. So what I am saying is that the audience for the instruction given is not women so that they can know what to say and do. Rather, the audience is men, Solomon's sons, so they can know what to look for in a woman whom they may wish to marry. You know, in a large measure, Proverbs, which comprises a rather large portion of the wisdom literature, is a book of instruction given by the wise man, Solomon, to his adult children on the various issues which will confront them in life. We can read the book from the standpoint of a son or a daughter, who would be obliged by birth to listen to Solomon as their father, or, or we can read the book from the standpoint of Solomon the father who is giving the instruction. Well, I'm taking the latter approach this morning for Father's Day. What does the Proverbs father say or do by way of instructing his children. And I must tell you at the offset that this is an impossible task to accomplish in one message. Indeed, in a year of messages, because Solomon, I'm reading scripture, spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. 1 Kings 4, verse 32. That's a lot of Bible texts to go through if you were going to make a study of it. And for this reason, I'm only doing a cursory, kind of a tip of the iceberg treatment of the subject. Proverbs 10.1 through Proverbs 22.16 are considered the chapters containing the main body of Solomon's Proverbs. And that's why the first verse of chapter 10 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, semicolon, and then they begin. So that's what we're looking at. Primarily, we're going to stick with this one chapter uh, this morning. What does the Proverbs father, in this case Solomon, what does he have to say to fathers? Well, you'll note in your bulletin outline that the first point that he makes is an appeal to his sons to be wise. Let's read it. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. I think if we had to pick but one theme for the entire book of Proverbs, the entire book, that theme would be wisdom. Wisdom. Solomon, from start to finish, appeals to his children 
to be wise. Chapter 1, verse 20 and following. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. Now, what he's doing here is he's personifying wisdom. He's making a person out of her. So she has a voice and she has things to say. And this is a good teaching technique. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public square at the head of the noisy streets and cries out, How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? There's a rather derogatory term we use sometimes in, in our colloquialisms of our day. Sometimes we call a person a simpleton. <laughs> you simpleton. It's not a compliment. <laughs> if someone calls you a simpleton, they're saying that, you know, you're, you're, not you're not working with a full deck. Or you're not thinking straight. That'd be a kinder way of saying it. He goes on. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me, now this is wisdom talking, whoever listens to me will live in safety and at ease without fear of harm. So clearly from the get-go, Solomon is advocating that his children forsake folly and embrace wisdom. He does this by expanding on the consequences of folly and the benefits of wisdom, a pattern to which he returns again and again in this book. But what does Solomon mean by wisdom? Get wisdom, he says. Well, yes, okay. But what is the wisdom he wants his children to get? Is he suggesting to them that they study hard in school and get good grades so that they can go off to college? Philosophy, mathematics, English, science, get wisdom. Is it the know-how of the world which comprises the wisdom Solomon wants for his children? Because after all, not everyone is gifted to go on to college. Is he then referring to what we might call street smarts? Does Solomon advocate that his children learn the ways of the world so that they become shrewd in business and clever in their dealings with men? Is he merely trying to equip his children with the savvy needed to make it in a complex and hostile world? Well, we can ask all these questions, but there's no guesswork that is needed. Wisdom says herself that those who reject her will call to her, but she will not answer, chapter 1, verse 28. And here is her reason, chapter 1, verse 29. When they call, I will not answer, since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Did not choose the fear of the Lord. The wisdom Solomon wants for his children is not intellectual achievement, nor the wily ways of a person who is streetwise. What he wants his children to learn is the fear of the Lord. Well, what is the one characteristic which can be written over every person of the world? Let me give it for you. Romans 3 verse 18. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the person of the world. No fear of God before their eyes. But Solomon wants his children to fear the Lord. Every human ill, every stra- and strange relationship can be attributed to the this deficiency of wisdom. No fear of God. No fear of God. People know how to turn a buck, but they know nothing of the truth. Nagin, the man, comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor, which he can carry in his hands. Solomon also wrote that. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15. People realize that? You'd think that that would temper their lives. Or again, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, in the day of judgment, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4, also written by Solomon. See, these are truths that the world just seems to go right over their head. Again, people know how to indulge their lust and immoral conduct, but they know nothing of God's warning. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline. Led astray by his own great folly. Proverbs 5, 21 through 23. And in the context... The author is writing about the lips of an adulteress drip honey, but her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 and following. So he's talking about immoral conduct and as though that somehow escaped the notice of God. No, it does not. So the wisdom which Solomon promotes to his children is the fear of the Lord. But you know, every, every turn of the spade brings up another problem. What does it mean when we say the fear of the Lord? You have to keep, we're, we're, we're spading the dirt here. We keep digging deeper and at trying to find out what Solomon is referring to. Well, in our study of fear that we did many years ago, we talked about the slavish kind of fear, which make men afraid of people of things, of places, of circumstances. If men indulge in willful disobedience to the holy will of God, then they should be afraid because the Bible says, the way of the transgressor is hard, not easy. God will see to it that it is hard. Proverbs 13, verse 13. I do not think that Solomon is promoting this kind of fearful fear this terror of the Lord which he talks about wisdom being the fear of the Lord more likely he's referring to that fear which indicates a reverence and an awe and a respect for God that comes from knowing who and what God is and the Bible repeatedly defines wisdom in these categories Look at the negative side. The height of folly is this. The fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. Well, there, is that person going to have wisdom? Not the kind of wisdom that um, Solomon is promoting. The positive side. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, verse 10. So this godly fear has its fruit, which makes it discernible. What's some of this fruit? To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Now we begin to define what the fear of the Lord will, how, how's it going to look in your life? Well, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Do you hate evil? Again, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 10, verse 27. Again, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the, from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, verse 27. So you want to live and live a long life, there needs to be proper respect and love and appreciation for God. Proverbs 16.6 says, Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Well, yeah. Or again, Proverbs 19, verse 23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Bottom line here is that the Proverbs father is going to teach his children about God with the hope and expectation that they will come to know God. That's what he's looking for. It isn't theology we're trying to instill in our children. It's the love of God. So in the New Testament we read, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4. Same, same kind of thought. Or again, Colossians 3.21 words it this way, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. We want them to get a picture of God the Father as they watch our Father. And fathers, it is the way you do your fathering that will either encourage the love of God in your children's hearts or it will present a warped view of God. How so? Because God repeatedly portrays himself as father. As father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He told his disciples that their love for sinners must exceed the love of men that they have for their own friends. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. And so, dads, I ask when our kids see us, do they see the love of God in us? Is our lives the first storybook of God's love? that they get to read. Solomon's desire was to teach his children the wisdom of God, to know God and his goodness was his chief end in writing the Proverbs. And so all Proverbs fathers will endeavor to do the same. And of course you've got to know God yourself in order to impart him to others. 
Isn't it interesting that the man known in Scripture as the wisest man who ever lived, apart from Christ now, chose to make God the central subject of his education. Oh, and just in case you think he was a dummy, there's texts in Ecclesiastes in particular that tell us he studied biology and named the plants, named the animals, he built aqueducts, he, he knew geology, and all of those other things which we call today the sciences. But theology, the knowledge of God, the study of God, was his chief and important. And that no wonder then he comprises the wisest man who ever lived. Secondly, the Proverbs father promotes righteous living in his children. Wisdom, number one, yes, and what that entails. Secondly, righteous living. We've all seen too many accounts where wicked fathers have reproduced themselves in their children. That is, thieves teaching their children the fine art of stealing, fornicators modeling immorality to their sons, drunkards and dopeheads making profligates of their offspring. But do we not see this in the Proverbs father? Notice, do we not see the Proverbs father promoting righteousness? Naturally, his heart's different. He's attuned to God. Firstly, in advocating a godly work ethic. Look at our text, verses 2 and following. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. He is advocating here a godly work ethic. Making a living is one of the, the, those concerns which is high on the list of everyone, not the least of whom would be Solomon's sons, who, like all sons, would have to make it in the world a business and earn not only their own keep, but the, be able to support a wife and family. So in our text, Solomon gives some counsel on principles that should govern one's work ethic if we are fathers trying to promote righteousness in our children. What are some of these principles? Number one, ill-gotten treasures are of no value, verse two. Now one may, how one makes his or her money is as important as making the money. So he says, ill-gotten treasures are of no value. The Proverbs has a lot to say about crooked business practices. Proverbs 21, verse 6, A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. Proverbs 1 talks about getting in with the wrong crowd whose plan is to waylay 
some harmless soul. It's talking about mugging with murder attached to it. Verse 11 and 12, for the purpose of getting all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Chapter 1, verse 13. Not at all calculating. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay themselves because God's looking on. Such is the end of all those who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He's talking about a work ethic and how you get your money, how you earn it is as important as earning it. Not everyone, however, is out to mug and murder. They just plan to gain their wealth through cheating, through cooking the books before the auditor comes in and does his work, through recalibrating the scales. There are people in the business world who think all of this is innocent because they say, well, everybody does it. I'm not hurting anyone. The company can afford it. See how they reason? They're reasoning that if they're not physically hitting somebody with a club or shooting them or stabbing them, they're not hurting them. It's just money. It's just business. Proverb 11.1 one says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Chapter 20, verse 10. Differing weights and differing measures, the Lord detests them both. In our day, uh, we take our value from, from coins, right? From money. So if I have a coin here, quarter, that has a certain value to it, its size, its stated value, stamped on the surface, hence a quarter, one-fourth of a dollar, 25 cents out of 100 cents. The only way to cheat on this kind of currency is to counterfeit it by mimicking its appearance, its color, its shape, its markings. Most people that are counterfeiters don't go after the quarters. <laughs> they go after the paper bills. But in Bible days, however, value was determined by weight. So many grains of silver equals a sum of money. So all one had to do to cheat another person was to doctor the weights of the scale. Deuteronomy 25, verse 13 and following indicates how this would be done. Do not, I'm, re I'm reading scripture, do not have two different weights in your bag. One heavy, one light. Do not have two measures. Measures are for liquids. Do not have two measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights 
and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For the, your, the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. Pretty practical stuff, isn't it? He is saying that ill-gotten treasures then are of no value because God will be against you if you are dishonest. So make sure in your business dealings that if you're, this is a quarter pound of whatever, you're not pulling out a lighter weight that is stamped quarter of a pound, but you know it's not a quarter of a pound, and you're sticking that on the scale and cheating your neighbor. Second principle in a good work ethic, verse 3, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. Just in case one thinks he or she has to cheat to eat, Solomon reminds his sons that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Well, where did he get that idea? He learned it from his father, David, who said, I was young. And now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Psalm 37, verse 25. In Psalm 111, verse 5, David wrote of God, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. We're back to this business of fearing God being righteous towards God, and then God taking care of us. So, okay, what about the starving masses in India? What about those in Africa and other places of the world? Do these people, I'm not, this is my question now, do these people fear God? Or do they fear and worship idols? <laughs> idols of their own making. The Indians of India worship the very cows that they could eat. But they'd rather starve than kill a cow. Because that's their God. And they don't want to kill God. But it's paganism. The principles we are looking at here are for the righteous. Those who fear and obey God. Psalm 145, verse 19. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God does provide food for the people of the world. But sometimes they go to bed hungry because of their paganism and their worship of idols and all that that brings about. If you want to read extensively about this, read Job 39, 40, and 41, those three chapters. The general principle is stated in verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. That's the general principle. Jesus put it this way. God causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We had a pretty... Heavy downpours last night in the Lapeer area. I could pretty well state without contradiction 
that the rain did not just fall on the Christian farmers' fields. It fell indiscriminately on whoever field is out there, planted with corn or what have you. Matthew 5, verse 45 is that text, but Luke 6, 36 is the parallel. The sons of the Most High, the son, be sons of the Most High because He is kind. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. What God is like that? One of the great surprises awaiting people in the day of judgment will be the realization of how much they owe to God's kindness and mercy and how often their ingratitude because of their unbelief has been evident. This being true, there is, however, a special watch care that God extends to his own people. Verse 6, blessing crowns the head of the righteous. Now, don't get like some of these TV evangelists. Ah, if you send in a seed money of $1,000, God will bless you with boogles more. In 90 days, 90 days seed money. Plant 1000 reap 5 After all, it says the Lord will bless the righteous. Yeah, but he doesn't bless always in the same coin. Sometimes it's as we donate our money to the church and pay for the things that let the gospel go forth, God blesses us with such things as our children being saved or our knowledge of him becoming more precious in times of great sorrow and on and on it goes. Third principle of a work ethic, verse 4. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Boy, do we need to hear that in our day of entitlements. Look at verse 5 of our text. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. What's he talking about? He's talking about Sleeping the workday away. Part of the righteous principle governing a Christian work ethic is, hello, work. Duh. Work. You'd be surprised how many fathers there are who set a poor example in this. Fathers, we need to teach our children that life does not hand us our wants nor our needs on a silver platter. The Bible always connects wealth with the diligent hand. Verse 4. And it condemns laziness. And it condemns indolence. I thought about this with regard to Solomon because the Bible says of him I'm reading scripture now the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly, yearly, was 666 talents. That works out to 25 tons of gold yearly. In today's market, that would be $1.3 billion a year. 
which is more than Bill Gates makes. Who's Bill Gates? Well, he was the chairman of Microsoft and the inventor to boot. Now, let me read the whole verse. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenue from the merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and governors. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. Well, what's that talking about? Verse 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Ooh. Verse 22 says, The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Hiram is his ally. Once every three years. Now, just think about this. This fleet of ships goes out from Jerusalem, and it's out on the seas for three years. It doesn't come back for three years. What are these ships doing? Well, he tells us. Once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, baboons. King Solomon was greatest in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. End of the reading. Several years ago, Bill Gates, the CEO and founder of Microsoft, was on the news because he had decided he was going to step down from his chairman position to devote more time in the area of charity. Okay. He had topped the Forbes list of the most wealthy man in the world for more than 10 years. And it was reported that he had given out of his fortune $10.5 billion to charity. Well, if you're worth $178 billion, then 10.5 isn't a whole lot, but it is sizable from our viewpoint. Solomon would make Gates look like a pauper in a day when gold was measured in tons, not ounces. I'm not knocking Mr. Gates because it was reported of him and is reported of him that he used to put in 10 and 12 hour days working. So he was not a lazy person. What about Solomon, who's warning against laziness? My question, was Solomon a lazy person? He's got all this money coming in, you know, a billion three per year. Well, with all of his wealth, in his biography, which is the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us, a man can do no better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one that pleases God. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 22. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says... I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. 
This is the gift of God. And God does it so that men will revere him. Here's a king worth billions that's working. He sees the value of work. What I'm saying is that he put his great wealth to work. In the scriptures we read, he, built, he, he planted vineyards and gardens. He built libraries, parks, orchards, reservoirs, aqueducts coming into the city of Jerusalem. He modernized everything using his money. Roads, highways, and of course the beautiful, beautiful temple for the Lord that became one of the ancient world's seven wonders of the world. Paul puts it this way, you know, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked. We worked day and night, he says. Laboring. Listen to these words. Toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 10. No welfare here for the lazy and the able-bodied. And so the Proverbs father promotes righteous living in his children through a godly work ethic which is characterized by honest enterprise, not ill-gotten treasure, verse 2, and by the realization that God has pledged himself to supply the needs of his people. You won't starve, verse 3, and by warning against being idle and being lazy, verse 4. Have a good work ethic, son. And I think this is really important because they weren't thinking, you know, when dad kicks the bucket, all that gold's going to come to us. He's telling them right up front, now you get your job and you go to work and you learn how to earn your own keep and support your own family. Now the second thing that he does here, and this is very important, he advocates a righteous use of the tongue, how one speaks. Beginning at verse 6 and following of our text, I want you to observe how often Solomon makes reference to the faculties of speech. Verse 6, blessings on the head of the righteous, but violence for the mouth of the wicked. Also verse 11. Verse 8, chattering fool. Verse 10, chattering fool again. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Verse 13, speaks of wisdom being found on the lips of the discerning. Verse 14, the mouth of fools invites ruin. Verse 18, talks about lying lips and slander. Verse 19, holds his, he holds his tongue. He who holds his tongue is wise. Verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Verse 21. The lips of the righteous nourish many. Words, speech, mouth, tongue, all the way down through this text. 
Think that's accidental? I don't. Speech, brethren, will identify the righteous from the wicked. It's one of those marks. Through speech, what is in the heart will be revealed. Jesus put it this way. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, verse 34. I can pretty well tell what a person's heart is by the way they speak. You can too. And he went on to add, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Speech is such an indicator of righteousness or the lack thereof in people that Jesus is saying it can be the measuring rod for acquittal or condemnation in the day of judgment. Now what is it about the speech of the righteous which is different from the speech of the wicked? Verse 31 of our text. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. And again, keep in context talking about the wisdom of God. The mouth of the righteous is going to tell you about God. It's going to speak in a con- concerted way to align with the principles of righteousness as opposed to a perverse tongue. Verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. So that's how we know. And thirdly, verse 12 The lips of the righteous speak with love. With love. I find it interesting that Solomon the father sees speech as one of the greatest indicators of righteousness. He is not Mr. Macho Man teaching his kids to curse a blue streak or to pepper every sentence with obscenities or to lie through their teeth, or to tell dirty jokes and other perverse things. He's not doing that with his kids. Not in direct teaching and not in his modeling. No, the lips of the righteous speak God's wisdom and innately know what is right and fitting. We are to be fathers of truth, speaking the truth in love, and in so doing, modeling our God and our Savior. So how are we doing, dads? If you're like me, you have some regrets. Maybe many regrets. The perfect father does not reside on earth, but in the heavens. And it is to God that we go in humble dependence for the task of becoming a Proverbs father. Keep in mind here that Solomon's wisdom is not his own wisdom. His prayer at the dedication of the temple was that God would give him wisdom. He didn't pray for money, he didn't pray for gold, he didn't pray for silver, he didn't pray for riches, he didn't pray for power, he didn't pray for any of those things which you would think a king would pray for. He prayed to God to give him wisdom to rule this great people. And if you read God's words, it's like, 
I don't think God is surprised by anything. Um, this is a colloquialism and anthropomorphic. I think God was pleasantly surprised by this prayer. Because he says something, because you didn't ask for but you ask for wisdom. I'm going to give you wisdom like no other person on earth. And I'm going to give you everything else too that you didn't ask for. The gold, the silver, the riches, the power, the fame. The... He got it all because he sought God's wisdom first and foremost. So the wisdom that he has and the wisdom that we've been reading and studying about here in Proverbs 10 was not Solomon's wisdom. It was God's. If we look at Solomon's life as a human being, Solomon set some pretty awful examples for his children in some areas of his life. And it says at the end of his life that his heart wasn't fully attuned to God like his father David had been. But here at least, under inspiration, he gives hope taking the lead by laying on himself and all fathers the responsibility to teach two main lessons in life. Number one, the imparting of God's wisdom to his children. God first, God foremost. No God, not just about God. And number two, the promotion of righteousness through a Christian work ethic, what we do, and the Christian use of the tongue, how we speak, how we relate to others. Guess what? When we come to the New Testament, listen to what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica as he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May they encourage your hearts and strengthen you in what? In every good deed, what you do in life, and word, what you say in life. Get a handle on those two things. And you are grounded in those things that will lead to righteousness. And it all begins with the wisdom or the fear of God. Our Father, thank you for your word this day. Thank you for each father here. For those that you have drawn unto yourself to come to know you. In ourselves, we were sinful men. We have sat and done many sinful things. We've been sometimes very harsh in our discipline or extremely lenient. We've used our mouth to curse, to belittle. To say things that are hurtful and unkind. And the whole adage that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. Words do hurt us. They affect our souls. They reach down deep. 
So we ask your forgiveness, Lord, for our failures as fathers. But in asking that, we look to God, our Heavenly Father, to grant us his righteousness as we endeavor to obtain his wisdom and his salvation through Christ. Jesus could say of himself and did say of himself to his audience in his day, a greater than Solomon is here, meaning he himself. When we come to know Christ, we come to know the summa bonum of wisdom, God's wisdom. None wiser. And Lord, if you will come by your grace and draw us into your family, granting us the faith that we don't have and the repentance we don't want, Lord, make us your adopted children this morning for your honor, for your glory, and yes, for our good and the good of our families. Thank you for every godly father here today. We're not perfect, we are sinners. We're thankful that you've brought us to know you, that you have forgiven us our sins and continue to do that because of Christ, our brother, our elder brother. And we thank you, Lord, for your great sacrifice. Bless us this day as we go our separate ways. Help us in our closing hymn to sing with great passion for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.